0: Welcome to The Idaho Debates, a Q&A for Congressional District 1. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates. I'm Marcia Franklin. Today we hear from the candidates running to represent Idaho in the first congressional district. That district is more than 500 miles long, extending from Idaho's border with Canada to the Nevada border. It includes both rural areas and the rapidly growing suburbs of Boise. The Republican candidate for the U.S. House position is Russ Fulcher. Mr. Fulcher is the incumbent and is in his first term of office. A native of Meridian, Idaho, Representative Fulcher was employed in the technology and real estate fields before taking office, including working for Preco Electronics and Micron Technology. He also served in the Idaho State Senate for nine years. His Democratic challenger is Rudy Soto. Mr. Soto, who was raised in Nampa, Idaho, is a veteran of the Army National Guard. Prior to running for office, he served as the legislative director of the National Indian Gaming Association and was a legislative assistant for U.S. Representative Norma Torres. Also vying for the House position is Joe Evans of the Libertarian Party. Mr. Evans is a veteran of the U.S. Army and works in the information technology field, specializing in cloud computing. Because of COVID-19 and the need for social distancing, we did not tape a traditional debate. Instead, I moderated a question and answer session with each candidate separately. The rules developed by the debate committee required that I ask every person the same question, with each having a minute and a half to respond. If I had a follow-up question, the candidate had 60 seconds to answer it, and they also had 60 seconds for a closing comment. If candidates went slightly over their time, I let them finish their thought. Because no candidate heard what his opponent said, there was no opportunity for a direct rebuttal. My first question was about the state of our country today. You know, obviously we're in a challenging time in this country, some have even said perilous. Could you uh, give us your thoughts and your characterization about the situation in our country right now?
2: I think that uh, history is going to look back on the year 2020 as a real turning point in our history, Marcia. Uh, We've got a significant conflict within this country. And at the root of it, I believe we have uh, uh, those who believe that we should maintain our traditional representative Republic. And we have a a very strong opposing force that would like to see that system change into a much more socialistic model. And that is at the root of a lot of this conflict. And of course, uh, my my preference is to stay with what got us uh, the most prosperity of any nation in the history of the world and uh, that's with a representative republic. But that is the root of a lot of the partisanship. And uh, I've got a whole class of new colleagues on the other side of the aisle that, that uh, don't wanna be called Democrats. They wanna be called socialist uh, progressives, and that's the mindset that they have. So this is the challenge. It's up to us to educate people. It's up to us to stand for what we believe. That's uh, what I'm attempting to do to the best of my ability. But I agree, this is a perilous time and we're being tested.
1: Just to follow up, uh, Representative, many of President Trump's own previous advisors have left his administration, some calling him unstable and unfit to serve in office. As we know, he has uh, contracted COVID-19, some say from his own uh, uh, lack of uh, safe practices. Do you right now have full faith and confidence in our president's ability to lead the country
2: I do and uh, let's put this in perspective a little bit. A lot of turnover in the White House is not uncommon. Uh, one of the people that I got to know best early was Mark Meadows and uh, he is uh, he was a member of Congress with me when i when I uh, went into my first term and now he's the president's chief of staff and he's He's uh, uh, enlightened me a little bit, but these jobs are tough. And uh, uh, with the pressure in the White House and the amount of uh, uh, attacks that he has gone through, uh, it has just been relentless. Uh, But I have gotten to know him a little bit, and uh, he is extremely competent when you're with him one-on-one. He's extremely congenial, thoughtful. He listens, uh, believe it or not, because a lot of people have the perception that he doesn't but uh, I do have confidence in him. Uh, he is a fighter and and uh, so he responds when he's attacked and that gives a perception sometimes, but uh, I do have confidence in him.
1: And just very briefly, even though he is ill right now, you have confidence that he will recover?
2: I do, and uh, uh, he's, he's in the age bracket that could be problematic, but uh, uh he is a workaholic he has got a metabolism and uh, and i can relate a little bit i'm a workaholic uh, but i think he's more of a workaholic i mean the guy does not stop and uh, he also has some good people around him i know mark well Uh, mark has i've got a tremendous amount of confidence in him i've gotten to know the vice president well and i've got good confidence in him and uh, uh, the, the other members of the cabinet are very strong ben carson is is very prevalent. I like him a lot, and he's got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of strengths in particular. So, the, see, some of the advisory capacity is good, and so I, I think that we're in in uh, in good hands. But no question, we're in trying times.
1: You know, the country is in a really challenging time right now. Some even say a perilous time. How would you describe the situation that our country is in right now?
3: absolutely it is without a doubt without a question Uh, we're at a a dark we're in a dark time a low moment in our country's history it's a time fueled by deep division and hatred and i'm hoping i'm driven uh, by a desire to help us turn the page to transform to turn a negative situation into a positive and uh, help us emerge out of this better than where we started Uh, my life is all about overcoming challenges. Uh, personally, uh, I have a lot of experience with knowing uh, about struggle, sacrifice, and service, and that's why I'm running for Idaho's first congressional district.
1: How would you bring people together in a time like this?
3: Well, because I served in the Army National Guard for the better part of a decade, I have. A considerable amount of experience uh, working with people from all backgrounds all walks of life and i I was born and raised in in nampa in conservative idaho but i've also lived in other places that are more progressive or liberal and i've never um, you know forgotten where i come from and so i've always been balanced about my approach to politics And so um, I'd be seeking to be a part of the bipartisan problem solvers caucus in Congress, which is made up of an equal amount of Republicans and Democrats that work across party lines to get things done.
0: What
1: is your thought about our president right now? Do you find him to be um, fit for the job?
3: Well, I think that's really questionable um, when it comes to him uh, contracting the coronavirus, and uh, many people throughout his administration at the highest levels, many are, you know, having to self-quarantine. Um, they're hospitalized. So uh, I think there's, you know, legitimate questions whether, because of all the different medications and all that he's taking, whether he's um, mentally, you know stable uh, when he's, you know, having Secret Service agents, um, you know, have to suit up uh, fully and put themselves at risk to drive around in a car and wave at people. Uh, There's some serious questions there.
1: You know, the United States is going through a challenging time right now. Some have even called it a perilous time. How would you describe the situation in our country right now?
0: I see the uh, situation in our country country is uh, ripe for opportunity. Right now we have a large amount of information coming at us that's telling us what has worked, what isn't working right now, and it gives us a chance to chart a new path forward. So, you know, with risk comes reward. So we are looking at a very opportune time in history moving forward right now.
1: So looking at that scenario, and you say it gives us lots of opportunities, what, what do you mean by that?
0: So one of the things we saw early on with the COVID reaction was the breakdown in our supply chain management system. Right now we understand that certain things don't work, so we have an opportunity to go in and create changes in the system so that they work better. One of the opportunities that I'm talking about would be like Thomas Massey's Smart Act, where we go in and we decentralize an awful lot of our food supply chain, giving options back to farmers for direct sale of their goods rather than routing them through a number of the industries that we already have that have monopolized our food supply chain in America.
1: So it sounds like you are not uh, worried about this time. Some people are quite concerned, even agitated. Um, you see it almost as as a positive situation.
0: Well, I don't want to come off as, you know, cavalier about the current situation. Reason why is because there are a lot of risks that are associated with it. What I want to be aware of is that we can do appropriate risk management, you know, in government, at the state level, at the federal level, and create those opportunities to reduce the risk here in the united states to reduce the risk to our communities and actually empower the people at the lowest level and be able to move forward and do great things
1: i want to ask you about our current president Um, some people view him as unfit or unstable Uh, how do you view president trump
0: president trump may not be the best president we've ever had But at the same time, I don't think he's been the worst either. I think that uh, he's been saddled with a Congress that has been combative and has prevented an awful lot of the opportunities that he has expressed interest in creating for the United States. But, you know, I won't say anything bad about the man right now.
1: You mentioned you didn't want to say anything negative about him. I'm curious to know as a veteran, how you felt about the reports that he had called um, people who had served the country uh, as, um, in military forces, losers, um, how did that go over with you and your veteran friends?
0: The issue of referring to military personnel as losers isn't a new one. Uh, part of this also goes back to Trump's history. We understand that he managed to get out of the, draft for Vietnam, uh, using his place, using his position, using his connections. And part of that was, of course, an extension of uh, college in order to avoid the draft. Thing is, is that's not unusual for a number of individuals from his generation, you know, who didn't actually go to Vietnam. Am I upset? Yes, I would think the commander in chief responsible for the command of the US forces around the globe should have more respect for the people he sends over to do nation building, as well as diplomacy as last resort.
1: The numbers of people in the United States testing positive for COVID-19 are rising again. And of course there have been more than 200,000 deaths attributed to the virus. Do you think the federal government has responded well to the pandemic?
3: Absolutely not. Uh, I don't even think that we can say that they've done their best. Uh, we have members of Congress that are acting in hyperpartisan partisan ways. Uh, my opponent, Congressman Fulcher being one of them, he voted against the Families First Coronavirus Response Act at the onset of the pandemic and has continually um, taken votes such as uh, voting for a government shutdown uh, even just recently. And so we need people on both sides, uh, Democrats and Republicans to put party ideologies aside and focus on passing legislation like small business relief uh, uh, funds, uh, making sure that there's still unemployment uh, extension benefits for people at least at you know a rate that will help people uh, keep keep their families whole and and help us get through this um, to provide the resources that that schools need to keep them safe uh, so families can go back to work and their kids and the staff and administrators and teachers uh, don't have to be uh, as much at risk as they otherwise are. So uh, we need a whole of government approach, a stronger boost, and, and we need everybody to be playing a stronger part.
1: More than a hundred countries right now have some sort of mask mandate. Of course, in the United States, um, it's handled on a much more local level. Do you think that it is time in the country to have a mask mandate for when people are in public?
3: You know, I would say that, um, I think that every, every city, county, state is different. Earlier, I was not in support of a mask mandate because you know just thinking about Kenyon County where where I'm from and live we have a lot more open space and less population density so it didn't make sense to me but now because it seems like if we don't get a stronger hold on the virus and we're going into a phase and period where the rates of infections are going up dramatically especially with the f- oncoming f- uh, flu season uh, it it does make sense uh because we're we, we need to not make this something political uh, and just accept that it's something that uh, we're faced with and we need to work together uh, to combat the virus. And so I, I would support it at this point because we're looking at potentially drawing this out to two or three years rather than what could have been a six month or a one year ordeal.
1: Will you take the vaccine when it is available?
3: Uh, You know, I I, I will have to see. Uh, I can't commit to that personally, just because it seems like the entire situation related to the virus has been over politicized. So there's people that have questioned up until just recently, and still some that are questioning whether it's even real. And they've they've alleged that, okay, right after uh, election day, it's all gonna magically go away and disappear. And that's absolutely not, true and consistent with uh, what's reported even by leaders in the current administration. Uh, And so when we're seeing uh, vaccines that are being fast tracked, that seem to be for um, political purposes that are not uh, not being uh, driven uh, in a way that is scientifically based, then I think there's gonna be some hesitation among the American people and and that's uh, myself included.
1: Let's talk about COVID. Um, The numbers of people testing positive for COVID in our country continue to uh, accelerate. And there have been, of course, more than 200,000 deaths attributed to the virus. Do you think the federal government has responded well to the pandemic?
0: No, I do not. Uh, One of the problems with the federal government is the combination of the lockdowns and everything else that has come with it. We have had opportunity for risk mitigation at several stages where the federal government, the state government and local governments could have properly intervened. Uh, Education on hygiene, education on the way diseases travel. A number of these things would have gone a lot further than our current situation if the federal government and federal agencies hadn't tried to massage egos in order to make certain people look better than they did with regards to the information they were putting out. Uh, One of the things is, is the masks and hygiene. These easily should have been put out very early on as part of the education process. You know, we have several people who work in a number of industries that are related to disease control, even estheticians have enough information on disease control that they could have been advising people effective measures that would have prevented the spread at the rate that is currently continuing.
1: You know, more than 100 countries now have some sort of mask mandate uh, for when people are in public. What do you think about those? Of course, certain uh, health districts in Idaho have also required them.
0: I don't think the mask mandate is particularly good idea. Reason why is because it's enforcement ultimately affects those people who are indigent, homeless, number of other uh, categories of people who lack access to the masks in order to effectively regulate and process. We'd actually end up in a situation where we'd be finding people who are broke, who are destitute, $1,000 $1,000 every time a police officer catches them without a mask. I think the mask mandate's a very poor form of approaching the issue. Now, Lauren McLean did a fairly good job early on by making masks available you know, to those people who needed them who couldn't afford them. Policies like that along with education will go a lot further than an actual mask mandate itself. The mask mandate wasn't required in Japan, wasn't required in Korea, Most of those populations did it all on their own, voluntarily.
1: Mr. Evans, if a vaccine is developed, uh, will you take it?
0: I'm not sure whether or not I'd actually take the vaccine at this time or not. Um, My experiences with vaccines in the military, including the anthrax vaccine, which I had had a couple uh, doses of, I would prefer to give it a little bit of time to go through its uh, courses, before I actually take it myself. Being a uh, kidney cancer survivor, I'm at one of those at risk, and it would be foolhardy for me to be one of the uh, early adopters of the vaccine program.
1: So I assume then you protect yourself by wearing a mask a lot?
0: Inappropriate company, yes, I do.
1: What does that mean?
0: Meaning there are some situations where I don't feel a mask is necessary because of my close companionship, the amount of involvement I have with people on a regular basis when I'm out in public in certain community situations, I respect those people around me and wear a mask appropriately.
1: Mr. Fulcher, the numbers of people testing positive for COVID-19 is rising again. And there have of course been more than 200,000 deaths in this country attributed to that virus. Do you think the federal government has responded well to the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I don't know of any, any circumstance uh, with the, the exception of World War II effort, just from my knowledge of history where the, uh, the federal government has mobilized the way that it has around something. And I think that it's important to point out that there's at least been an effort to allow the uh, states to operate locally because things are so different. And I can tell you, because half of my time is in Washington, D.C., half of my time is in Idaho. There are very, very few similarities. And the way the federal government uh, acted so quickly on this uh, PPP, frankly, uh, the pay, uh, uh, Payroll Protection Plan, getting uh, funds and resources to, to uh, some of those small businesses and resources. Uh, I, frankly, I didn't think that was even possible for the federal government to move that fast. Now, in hindsight, uh, hopefully uh, we'll be all smarter when uh, uh, the next time something like this happens, and we need to expect that but you learn from these situations. But uh, I, I think overall, I think the federal government has, has uh, responded pretty well. And most of the states uh, seem to have responded well too. It's just, it's just a difficult situation for everyone. A lot of lessons learned too.
1: Mr. Fulcher, why did you vote against the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, which was the first coronavirus aid package? The legislation was supported by President Trump and you were one of only 40 members in Congress to vote against
2: it. I think I remember that one now. It's a pretty easy answer. It wasn't written by the time we were voting on it. Uh, And I have a fundamental problem with uh, voting on legislation that I haven't seen or haven't read. But as I recall, that was that was uh, put forth at uh, around 1 a.m. On a, on a Saturday morning, and uh, the the majority party wanted to get their members home and so they expedited it through and and uh, had a vote before it was finished. And so uh, I, I just uh, can't uh, jump in and engage with uh, with a, a yes vote on something that I haven't seen yet.
1: Even though your colleagues uh, in the Republican Party, the majority of them voted for it.
2: Yeah, let's just say that uh, they probably had more faith in it than I do in the system. I don't know. You'd need to ask them, Marcia, as to, as to why. But uh, the reality is we did know the major points, and I think that's what they will tell you if uh, if you're speaking to them, is they knew the major ingredients. I knew the major ingredients. However, if I recall correctly, after the vote was taken, there were eight pages added, and some of them had some significant changes to it. And so... I'm not uh, attempting to be negative on my colleagues. I know the intention. I know it was it was good. Just for me personally at, at this at this stage, I I've got to have confidence that I know for sure and I've seen with my own eyes what's in these bills.
1: Representative Fulcher, what are measures are you taking to make sure that you and the people around you are safe? For instance, do you wear a mask every time that you're in the presence of other individuals?
2: Yeah, I, I follow the guidelines that have been put out, and they're different in, uh, in the places that I go to. Uh, there was, I was in uh, uh, Kootenai County yesterday, and in that particular environment, the, uh, uh, the, the preference was not to wear them. We were outside, and there was some distance, and so I, I uh, uh, was with the, the people that were there and did not wear one. Uh, when I'm in uh, D.C., it, it's been requested that we wear one pretty much all the time when we're interfacing with people. I do that. We take the precautions that uh, you know are, are uh, uh, just recommended and prevalent. We've got the sanitizers. We try to do the distancing. Uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I try to just encourage people. Look, uh, you you can't stop living. Uh, some of this pressure has gotten people uh, discouraged and we've got a lot of of, um, uh, mental struggles as a result. And so you try to follow the guidelines, do your best, uh, but um, uh, at the end of the day, we we have to live as a people too.
1: And I was under the impression, um, and you can answer this briefly as part of the next question, that the Panhandle Health District had uh, instituted a mask mandate for that area for Kootenai County. But I wanted to know, um, when a vaccine is available, sir, do you believe that you will take it?
2: I probably will. Um, we've had some pretty good briefings, uh, from the, the, uh, central different district health. We've also met with, uh, when I say we members of Congress has met with some of the, uh, uh, physicians that are working with these companies that are coming up with a potential vaccine and I'm encouraged about it and they went out of their way to convince us that this there were shortcuts were not being taken to the reverse. Uh, I think there's so much resources being thrown at this. They're budgeting it. They're running everything in parallel. Uh, they're doing things that are frankly are overkill in terms of the process is my understanding. But uh, I probably will. I, now, that said, and the next question might be, will I insist that everyone else does too? And the answer to that is no. So I'll, I'll just tell you that right now. But uh, I think that we have to make the decision about what goes in our body, but I probably will. Uh, and I think that the system is is gonna come up with a good vaccine soon.
1: Let's talk about your qualifications. What distinguishes you from your opponents?
0: Uh, what distinguishes me from my opponents is four tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. I am an army veteran, military intelligence background as well as combat arms background. I've been involved in operations, military operations other than war in Afghanistan and Iraq for close to about three years once you add all the time up together. That gives me an insight into our foreign policy and the effects of our foreign policy on our neighboring nations. I've also been involved in activism and community organization here in the Treasure Valley to certain degrees with a number of organizations, working towards peace, uh, domestic violence issues, as well as sex trafficking.
1: Do you think that your lack of experience in politics, uh, you know, never having held political office would hinder you in this position?
0: Uh, In a lot of ways, I actually consider that to be a bonus uh, for admission into Congress reason why is because I'll be allowed to make mistakes. Uh, there's a problem with the way that Congress is currently being handled and that it's not being done the way that our forefathers had intended it to be done. We have processes and procedures that prevent the proper debate on issues. And as we've seen, I've actually listened to some of the broadcasts from Raul Labrador about the way things are done in Washington these days. And we really need to take back the power of the people. And having not experienced that, I think I'm in a good position to go in and help change the way that we do things in Congress.
1: Could you uh, please tell us what distinguishes yourself from your opponents?
2: You know, uh, I look at, that that landscape as well as a landscape with uh, uh, the rest of my colleagues and I've been blessed with a a personal resume that is frankly it's it's well suited for this and representing Idaho. I love this state. I love Idaho. I've lived here all my life. My family has uh, roots that go back more than 100 years. Farm kid, it was how I grew up and that was the work ethic and the mindset that that I was raised with and then and frankly in the right place at the right time got started with a tech company when I was very young and spent 20 some years uh, literally traveling the planet as a as a technology executive and and uh, working all over the world and getting firsthand exposure to how commerce is done how education's handled and those types of things then back home and uh, in the state senate for 10 years and and then uh, uh, commercial broker while I was real estate broker while I was doing that. So the the circumstances have put me in a situation to where I I believe I'm prepared for it. And uh, beyond and above that is just I care. I sense the same thing that uh, that you brought up in the very first question. The situation, the tough situation this nation is in, and and I care about that. And uh, and I hope to be able to have a positive influence and continue to represent
3: Idaho.
1: Mr. Soto, what distinguishes you from your opponents?
3: (laughs) Wow, well, where do we start? So um, Congressman Fulcher um, and the rest of Idaho's congressional delegation has never uh, worn the United States military uniform. I think that's probably the biggest distinction between us. Also come from a different background. You know, I uh, grew up in poverty and uh, difficult circumstances that lead a lot of kids into trouble. So I myself um, was one of them and bounced around in juvenile corrections for the better part of 12 to 14 years old. And I'm fortunate I didn't become a, a part of the school to prison pipeline system. I was able to go away where uh and move next door to oregon with my older brother uh, where there's a stronger public education system and go on to pursue my potential and so i've seen firsthand the benefits of government uh, programs that can help uh with a with a hand up uh and so uh, we're, we're on different sides of um the spectrum when it comes to you know he's very anti-government uh, and i'm very much for good government and, uh, you know, I, I, um, I just come from a, a background of knowing uh, what it's like for everyday Idahoans and Americans that struggle to make ends meet, uh, that simply seek a fair shot at the American dream.
1: I'd like to follow up on your uh, qualifications. You have never served in office. Um, so talk about if that might be a, a deficit um, in your ability to take on this position.
3: Absolutely, it would not in any way, shape or form be a detriment uh, because I actually have worked in Congress longer than um, Representative Fulcher. I was a staffer for two members of Congress, uh, one from Oregon uh, and one from California. And so I got to staff the Natural Resources Committee, the Subcommittee on Federal Lands, the Subcommittee on Water Power Oceans. I handled agriculture issues, education, Uh, veterans, transportation infrastructure, met with leaders from um, all sectors of society. I was a legislative director. Uh, I've been a policy analyst in public health. I've worked in the fields of child welfare, as well as economic development to help tribes um, that are seeking to become self-sufficient. So I have a pretty well-rounded background. And of course, uh, I've served in government through my service in the United States military and field artillery, as well as military police. Uh, So I bring a lot to bear. I think we need less career politicians and more public servants, uh, people that are dedicated to putting the people's interests first and not just party ideologies.
1: If you are elected, could you please name a specific piece of legislation that would be your priority to sponsor and get passed during your term?
2: Uh, Marcia, believe it or not, I've got more than 100 PIECES OF LEGISLATION. JUST NAME, that just
1: name ONE THAT'S A PRIORITY TO GET PAST.
2: <laughs> RESILIENT FOREST, uh, THAT'S A BIG ONE. AND uh, WE HAVE SO MANY, SO MANY uh, uh, RESOURCES TIED UP IN OUR, our U.S. The NATIONAL FOREST. And, if, AND I'M A SPONSOR OF THE RESILIENT FOREST PLAN, WHICH WOULD ALLOW SOME some MORE uh, LOCAL STAKEHOLDERS INPUT ON HOW THAT'S MANAGED, HOPEFULLY CUT BACK ON SOME OF THE WILDFIRES, CLEAN UP SOME OF THE UNDERBRUSH and and get some economic t- activity as a result. And, and that's that's a big one. And so that one would probably be right at the top.
1: Now, you haven't been the main sponsor of any legislation the past two years that that has become law. And you've said that's- That's not a- true.
2: That, that's not true. That's not true. There are at least two where I'm a primary sponsor with a Democrat co-sponsors. Both of them are related to veterans. Uh, Jared Golden out of Maine and I, uh, were the primary sponsors of a veterans piece of legislation. Uh, Chris Pappas, a Democrat from New Hampshire, and I on another piece. And so uh, it's been difficult to do that in a partisan environment, but we've been able to do that.
1: A follow-up to that then, if uh, the Democrats maintain control of the House, maybe gain the presidency um, or a majority in the Senate, how will you work with the other side to make sure that your initiatives do get passed? Because you have criticized the Speaker of the House before for stalling things.
2: Oh, well, yeah, well, uh, Marcia, that's, this is, these are not normal circumstances. Uh, the uh, Speaker, as you know, has put forth a proxy rule that had never in the history of the United States has been put in place for the first time ever members of Congress have the ability to vote remotely. And that sounds like that might be innocuous, but it's not, and I'll tell you why. Uh, We do not have what's called regular order right now. The legislation that we deal with does not go through the standard process. It doesn't have the normal debate or opportunities for amendments. And I believe the speaker has done this in part to simplify her life and also allow her members to vote from home or wherever they're campaigning and not uh, uh, not have to to be in Washington, D.C. But that said, I'll continue to do what I've done. And I think I've made some really good progress in building relationships with members across the aisle. We've had to be creative how we've done it, but uh, got some good allies on the other side of the aisle. And we'll continue that, it'll be harder if, uh, if the uh, other side is in control on all, uh, all areas, but uh, you know what, that's part of the challenge and we'll do it.
1: If you are elected, could you name a specific piece of legislation that would be your priority to sponsor and see get passed?
3: Oh, heck yes. So uh, I'm really excited to be a part of helping uh, bring about more affordable and accessible healthcare. That's the biggest issue why I'm running. Uh, My dad passed away prematurely after being laid off of his factory job in 2014. He lost his health insurance after that, God's sake, didn't get treatment in time, Away uh, shortly thereafter. It was a tough and traumatic experience for my family and I, and I put that pain into purpose. Uh, But what inspired me to run was the passage of Medicaid expansion by over 60% of the vote here in Idaho, 16 out of 19 counties in Idaho's first district. Uh, Congressman Fulcher was uh, lauded as the leader of the anti, as uh, the leader against Medicaid expansion, and actually was on the board of directors for the Freedom Foundation. That litigated against uh, the will of the voters, um, all the way up through the Idaho Supreme Court, to fight against um, that going into into action. And so we're we have over 90 around 90,000 people that have uh, obtained healthcare through that. And I want to expand on that by uh, bringing about a public option, uh, where more people who aren't poor enough to qualify for Medicaid uh, can get basic healthcare.
1: Uh, currently, every member of Idaho's congressional delegation is is Republican, as are all of our state's constitutional officers. If you are the only Democratic member um, of the state's delegation, how confident are you in your ability to work across party lines to get pieces of legislation passed?
3: Oh, I mean, I think really I'll probably be a lead bipartisan co-sponsor right along with the other uh, incumbents uh, to get a lot done to bring about rural broadband uh, because they're most likely gonna be a part of the minority party. They already are in the house and that's not likely to change uh, whatsoever. In the Senate, uh, it's looking like um, the Republican party uh, will will lose. And you know, to have one member of the delegation uh, be a, a moderate Democrat, a centrist Democrat would be a big boost for our state. Uh, because I would have the ear of the leadership, and uh, they would help us so that you know we can make sure that people in our rural communities uh, have more uh, stability and security and access to economic opportunity through reliable internet. So uh, I will work with Congressman Simpson to address issues like uh, salmon extinction and restoration, and a whole lot of other uh, of other priorities for Idaho.
1: If you are elected, could you name a specific piece of legislation that it would be your priority to both sponsor and get passed during your term?
0: Uh, My first priority would be to repeal the authorization use of military forces for 2001 and 2003. Those were the uh, authorization for the Afghanistan war and the war on terror, as well as the war on Iraq. Repealing those would be the first step in bringing our troops home that's one of my primary platform issues is bring our service members, give them proper respect, bring them back to the states where they can spend time with their families without worrying about deployments, without becoming casualties of a generational war.
1: How realistic would it be politically to get that done?
0: Well, I'd hope it'd be extremely realistic politically. I know you know, 70% of the veterans in the United States eagerly support bringing our troops home. Most of the population of the United States believe in it. The real crisis right now is getting enough people into Congress who believe in it.
1: Well, I guess that's what I, I meant. You know, Like, c- could you really get the approval of the parties, uh, all the parties to bring all the military home that way?
0: There's actually a number of individuals already in Congress, as well as ones who are running. You know, the freshman class that will be arriving in 2021 for Congress, a number of them will probably be peace activists. And we already have several that are already there. Uh, Thomas Massey, I believe, will be able to retain his seat. Um, Oxiana Cortez also. There's a number of activists. Well, there's a number of congressmen and senators that are actively interested in bringing our troops home, including others with a libertarian mindset like Senator Rand Paul.
1: As I'm sure you know, there's never been a libertarian who's been elected to Congress and the one self-identified libertarian who's there now said he won't run for re-election. So if you're elected, you would be in a distinct minority. <laughs> How would you work with yes. the other parties to get things done? It being a party of one essentially.
0: Uh, I'd have to take a lot of cues from um, uh, Justin Amash and some of the other individuals who've gone in as parties of one, uh, probably look at Bernie Sanders as one other role model, had his uh, experience as an independent you know, to be able to understand and work across the aisles in order to to compromises, make arrangements, as well as know when to play my cards and know when to hold them.
1: On the job front, 2.4 million people are now considered to be long term unemployed, with a potentially another close to 5 million uh, approaching that mark. What would you do to help boost job growth?
3: Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for that question. I'm really big on growing the economy for the ground, from the ground up. I think that uh, we would benefit from, you know, we, we have serious and staggering problems when it comes to the federal uh, debt and, and deficit, uh, but there's good debt. And so when we talk about uh, infrastructure development, that would be huge for Idaho, especially the Treasure Valley um, and in northern Idaho, where we have um drastic rates of growth uh, where our our infrastructure hasn't kept up hasn't kept up with we could benefit from um, better and improved uh, public transit especially along just key corridors along i-84 and along certain um, boulevards so that people who you know want to get a job can get there people can't just uh, buy a car out of nowhere and it's also not good for for our for our environment, and so there's a lot we can do on that front. Um, building uh, more uh, rural um, health facilities uh, so that you know veterans don't have to travel long distances, um, bringing about more telehealth. There's there's a whole lot we can do um, to bring commerce um, and on small business entrepreneurship to rural communities through reliable internet. Uh, expansion would be huge. And I see it as an investment that we can compare to the interstate highway exchange system that you know we built out, we put a lot of people to work doing it, and then it more than paid itself off um, over uh, future generations.
1: 2.4 million people are currently considered long-term unemployed right now, and almost 5 million are essentially in the pipeline to approach that mark. What would you do to create job, more jobs?
0: One of the issues with jobs here in the United States right now is the corporate um, stranglehold that they have on American jobs. We have enough regulations and enough uh, legislation sitting in Congress, both at the United States at the federal level, as well as the local levels to prevent entrepreneurship and small businesses from truly being able to adapt and compete in the current environment. The barriers to entry for entrepreneurs all across the United States continue to mount while corporations continue to get tax breaks, small business owners continue to pay, you know, significant amounts of money. So there's two things that would be involved in that process. One is deregulation in Washington, D.C. and the other is reformation of the tax code so that corporations and the small businesses are actually competing on an even playing field.
1: Have you been following at all the um, talks over the next stimulus act? Uh, it's it's uh, The Republicans and Democrats have kind of been at loggerheads although it looks like something may break soon. Um, have you followed that at all? And if so, uh, do you support or oppose any of the provisions in what they're looking at?
0: Most of the, yeah, most of the provisions that they're looking at happen to be corporate bailouts, which was something we were discussing uh, just this last session, or the last question. Uh, the corporate bailouts are currently being agreed to by both Republicans and the Democrats in order to keep major businesses going along, aren't something I really agree with. We've already done the top-down stimulus package three, four times now already with corporate bailouts all across the United States. We still haven't gotten those stimulus packages down to small businesses. We still haven't gotten those stimulus packages down to the people. We still haven't gotten the stimulus packages down to the working class Americans right now. And if the last 40 years hasn't taught us anything else, trickle down doesn't work. And it's time we stop approaching our economic problems with that solution.
1: Representative, uh, 2.4 million people are now considered long-term unemployed with another almost 5 million about to approach that mark. What would you do to boost job growth?
2: Yeah, so there's, that's a twofold answer and uh, what an impact a pandemic has. But in the short term, uh, I do believe we need to extend the PPP plan and that's something that's on the table being discussed right now uh, we also need to extend some waivers, uh, Marsha. We've got some waivers right now for short-term health plans that need to be extended. Also, uh, had an opportunity to work to allow some of that, those CARES dollars uh, to be used in the state for broadband uh, in rural areas. And that needs to be extended, a waiver to allow those funds to be used for things like that. Telehealth is another thing that we need to have waivers so that can continue to be utilized longer term. Uh, I would want to see the small business tax cuts be made permanent. Uh, those have had a positive impact, and that predictability, I think, would be, uh, would be very good. Also, with uh, uh, just a lot of bigger scale, the trade policy with China, we need to stand firm on that. Uh, that's a, that is very impactful, not just for Idaho, but for our nation. We need to stand firm, also make sure that the United States continues to export, be an energy exporter. That fact has reset the deck internationally. We are much stronger because we aren't dependent as much for energy. So those are a few of the things, and that's a, it's a long discussion point, but uh, those are some of the main ones.
1: Mr. Fulcher, Republicans and Democrats have been at loggerheads over approving another stimulus act to help the economy. Uh, what do you need to see in that in order to support it?
2: Uh, uh, Marcia, the better way for me to answer that is what I do not want to see to support it. And uh, that is, I don't want to see the proposed dollars to uh, bail out some of the cities and states, for that matter, that I think were mismanaged, and that's where a lot of the the uh, conflict is over right now. the The speaker's proposals include a lot of bailout money for San Francisco or Detroit or Chicago, and and you know what? That's uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's not the responsibility for Idahoans to be paying for that or any other taxpayers, for that matter. The, those those issues need to be dealt locally. Uh, I, I don't want to see uh, money being uh, um, put into two different programs that don't have anything directly to do with economic recovery due to the pandemic. So the last time or when I, when I left, uh, there was a $2 trillion difference in the proposals. I primarily want to see the PPP expanded, maybe some of the unemployment. Uh, other than that, uh, I don't want to see the other things that are in that bill proposed by the, the people across the aisle right now.
1: Could you tell me, Mr. Evans, do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed, and if so, what should replace it?
0: Yes, I believe 100% the Affordable Care Act should be repealed and replaced. One of the problems it created when it went into place was it rebuilt, it restructured the American health insurance industry. That in itself has created danger as well as inflated healthcare costs all across the entirety of the United States. There's a number of other regulations that continue to restrict medical access to individuals all across the United States, including the limits on the numbers of doctors and nurses that can be trained and licensed at any given time in the United States. We've literally created a healthcare bottleneck for the sake of profits with regards to insurance companies and healthcare providers. Uh, Affordable Health Healthcare Act was part and parcel of making that bottleneck even worse. So it definitely has to be repealed and replaced. At this time, I'd actually have to sit down with healthcare providers, uh, come up with some sort of idea with uh, not just the healthcare providers, but the other stakeholders, and coming up with a solution that would actually work in an appropriate replacement of the Affordable Care Act so that we can move forward and reduce the cost of healthcare across the United States and also eliminate the monopoly that the insurance companies have on healthcare provisions.
1: Yes, that would be a challenge because more than 20 million people are now involved in one way or the other with uh, getting their healthcare insurance via the ACA. So there's a lot of yes. a lot of people out there. I'm curious to know um, one of the options under the Affordable Care Act was to expand Medicaid, and many states have done that, including Idaho, which did it through a. Uh, voter initiative, Um, what's your sense of what might happen to those who are on expanded Medicaid if the ACA is repealed? And do you have any concerns about that?
0: I have tons of concerns with regards to that. And it's one of the reasons why the repeal of the ACA has to be staged and staggered in such a way so that nobody actually loses health care in the process of trying to create uh, and trying to remove those roadblocks, the uh, bottlenecks to healthcare in the United States. It's part of the process that we look at as a libertarian platform. Uh, Spike Cohen, Joe Jorgensen have talked extensively on the process of medical care reform so that we can create affordable situations where people are no longer dependent upon insurance policies. The key, of course, when it comes to healthcare is transparency. And I think that's been what's lacking with regards to the ACA as well as healthcare for the United States for what, close to 40 years now. We have no idea what the insurance pays. So we have no idea what we should expect to pay when we go into the physicians.
1: Mr. Fulcher, um, do you believe that the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it? Because there's currently no plan.
2: Yeah. So, uh, take a, a pause and hit the way back machine to 2011, 2012, and compare your healthcare premiums with what they are now. And uh, uh, there's a, there will be a stark difference. And if you're on the uh, uh, in the average category in terms of healthcare coverage, multiple multiple times uh, more you're paying now than you were then and chances are your options are much more limited. So uh, we can thank the Affordable Care Act for that. And so I've always been in favor of repealing it and uh, there's other ways to deal with it. You can do some overhauls, but to the second part of your question, there is a plan and we've we've presented one of them and uh, there are several that are on the table. Unfortunately, we can't get them heard right now, but we'll keep pushing on that. But basically what that does is it puts the, or what the the alternative plan that I propose does is put the decision-making into the hands of the patient or in the hands of the individual as opposed to the government. And it offers some transparency so that you can be an educated consumer uh, and know what things are going to cost and have options to uh, do things like a a tax deferred HSA, uh, healthcare, um, healthcare memberships, whole list of things that make it much more uh, private, much more uh, market centric than the government making our decisions for us.
1: Do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if for some reason it is, what should replace it?
3: Absolutely not. Uh, That's a big, differentiator between Congressman Fulcher and I, he's one of the most outspoken uh, about repealing it without a replacement and the plans that he puts forth and talk about, talks about, they don't really add up and and make sense. Uh, So I think we need to strengthen it. We need to fix it. We need to shore it up and we need to expand and enhance it. And I think we go about that through the establishment of a public option. Like I said, for people that uh, aren't impoverished enough to or low income enough to qualify for Medicaid that are perhaps in transition that are recent college graduates or high school graduates, we provide welfare, welfare for a lot of corporations by um, having people that are employed by these large companies that pay very little to no money in taxes, and yet they're receiving a lot of public uh, benefits um, and, and support. And so we, we, we'd be much better off um, just creating a basic um, plan that would be an offset and competitor For the private health insurance industry and it would help toward bringing down prescription drug prices Uh, we could further telehealth and uh, have cross interagency collaborative efforts for instance between uh, the department of the va and other community health centers and get those out more in rural communities
1: you mentioned earlier Medicaid expansion, which was uh, passed by the voters of Idaho two years ago, and is an, was an option under the ACA. Um, what do you think will happen if the ACA is repealed to that Medicaid expansion option?
3: Well, it, it will it will absolutely um, tear that help access away from people, and it it, it will pretty much just take the foundation out from underneath it and so all those people will be thrown under into uncertainty and in the midst of a pandemic uh, who knows uh, the havoc that that can wreak on on people's uh, families and communities and uh, that's probably been the biggest saving grace for us to help um, make sure that people can go see a doctor if they get sick, stay home, get the treatment and care that they need. Uh, and it's helped actually bring in revenues for our state that have helped us um, be on a pretty good fitting, footing. So uh, it's it's absolutely unfathomable and unacceptable to support uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act with no uh, plan that would actually add up
1: Immigration has always been a hot topic. Um, what immigration reform measure do you support?
2: I have personally been on the southern border uh, for an extended period of time in varied places, and uh, boy, did I get an education! It, it, it's uh, uh, it's a, it's a stark impact. We we legally immigrate more people, Marcia, than. Than every other nation in the world combined, and that doesn't even go into the number that come into the to the country illegally. So I do believe, first and foremost, that the border security has to be uh, put in place, and that's for everybody's good, just for safety and the situation we have with uh, uh, the cartels uh, coming across illegally and and shipping drugs across illegally, uh, the illegal immigration with. Um, uh, terrorism. And I've seen that data. I've actually witnessed some of the things happening there. So border security is first. Secondly, I do believe that any reform package does need to be uh, generally uh, centered around a merit-based system. As you're probably aware, I did support some, some uh, immigration uh, reform earlier this year that's now in the Senate, I believe. And that has to do with uh, opening up uh, some more uh ag workers for our state because i know that we need that but the bottom line is is uh, uh, border security merit-based system and follow the law uh, uh, it, and w- if people want to come here that's great we need them we want them but follow the law
1: mr soto immigration obviously is a perennial issue um, for elections and, and in our country what immigration reform measures do you support
3: Yes. So I love talking about this issue as contentious as it is because I know it from uh, multiple sides. I've lived it. My dad actually came here uh, undocumented uh, from Mexico, uh, was a a laborer, a farm worker in the field, later factory worker, which we're really proud of. Uh, He gained legalization under uh, the Ronald Reagan administration And on my other side of my family, I'm a descendant of a chief, Uh, I'm Shoshone Bannock, an enrolled member from here in Idaho. And so I talk about seeing this issue from um, unique perspectives because uh, on the Native American side, there's definitely people that understand fears of unchecked immigration that make me empathetic to those views. But at the same time, While I was a military policeman in the Army National Guard, I myself was deployed to the US-Mexico border in Texas and New Mexico in 2014. So I got to see firsthand through long shifts. I was partnered up with border patrol agents and I got to use the equipment and witness what's going on for myself. Not for a photo op like my opponent, um, but in a real way and it made me see that Politicians are really not, they don't have the courage to deal with it. They use it as a political football. I would be for comprehensive immigration reform and it'd be a privilege and honor to work with Congressman Simpson, who's been a leader on that issue.
1: I'm not sure I heard an answer to the primary question. What immigration reform measures would you support? You have one minute to answer that.
3: Yeah, so I support comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, I wanna protect dreamers. Uh, TPS holders, I wanna make sure that people are able to obtain visas to travel here, but I also support strengthening our borders through structures, technology, um, and closing weaknesses uh, on the border, but I'm not for a wall, I'm not for inhumane treatment, and I'm certainly for honoring uh, our our traditions, as, as a country, which is, you know, we're a nation of immigrants and, and we gotta uphold that identity.
1: Immigration issues obviously are um, perennially discussed um, in elections and I'm wondering what immigration reform measures you support?
0: Immigration in the United States, there is work here for people who wanna work. If they wanna come here to work, please, come. Work visas should be a dime a dozen. We should literally be letting people in in order to work. It's one of the problems we have with the regulations and the bottlenecks. If we create the situation where opportunity is more available to citizens of the United States, they'll be able to create those jobs and opportunities for other people who want to immigrate to the United States for the American dream to come here and work. So uh, work visas and paths to citizenship would definitely be one of the front-loaded questions. One of the other problems I have, particularly as a veteran, was our Dreamers Act. Right now, we are having a significant problem with deported veterans across the United States. They come back from war with post-traumatic stress injury. They resort to coping mechanisms, some of them even drugs, Upon identification that they've been using drugs before they've been granted their citizenship. These are veterans of United States wars that are being deported back to nations that they probably haven't seen since the day they were born. So I definitely see immigration as a huge issue and reform is critical in making that happen.
1: I believe you're also, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a proponent of open borders. Could you talk a little bit about that and its practicality? Uh, I mean, yeah, explain that a little bit more.
0: Well, one of the things we enjoy here in the United States is open borders. We travel between Idaho and Montana. We can drive across all 50 states, you know, without worrying about passports, visas, or any of those other issues. As far as opening it up from open borders, where most people consider this to be an issue is along the Southern border between Mexico, where individuals can simply walk across. Now, open borders would allow us to create those checkpoints where people regularly process through so that we're no longer dealing with illegal trafficking and human trafficking across those sparse areas where there is no presence. The people would be able to come in and visit and leave at will with a relatively minor background check, something that goes fairly quickly. You committed a crime in Mexico in the last 60 days. Thank you. Really, we need to uh, correct that issue because that is what facilitates commerce between nations.
1: Of course, very controversial as well. There's a lot of uh, anxiety and fear around the immigration issue. Wouldn't, you know, about people maybe coming over in an open border and then staying here. So, how would you um, police that in a sense? Um, Make sure that people didn't overstay their visit
0: well most people who come and wish to overstay come here because they're seeking opportunity they want to work they want to come here they want to participate in the american dream they want to seek prosperity it's part of the reason why they left where they came from they come here because they want to make themselves better they want to better themselves be their best selves and they see coming to the united states as one of the ways to do that I wouldn't worry about policing the overstay as much as making sure that there is a path to citizenship for those people who come over and participate as part of being an American.
1: North Idaho has a history of being a haven for white supremacists and white nationalists, and there are reports of continued recruitment in, to those groups in that area. Do you condemn white supremacy and white nationalism?
3: Absolutely. Of course. I mean, (laughs) look at me. I'm a minority. uh, So there's without a doubt. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot, I've had a lot of people um, warn me about going up north. I've met nothing but good people in all my travels up north. And I love it up here. I'm actually up here in North Idaho right now. Uh, I condemn it. Uh, wholeheartedly. I've called on my opponent too. He's been really wishy-washy on that topic among others. Uh, in fact, he has connections to using his office to assist some of them. And um, and so um, I, I hope he'll uh, do the right thing. Uh, he actually just voted. Um, he, he didn't vote. It, it was weird. He uh, there was a vote to condemn kane the conspiracy theory driven movement and he he didn't vote and it was really inconsistent with his track record of in voting patterns he typically does vote and then he's been outspoken against people proxy voting and he, he said he just missed it and but then he all the people that are supportive of that movement, We're voting along the same lines. It was like a not, not present vote. Um, and so I hope he'll be really clear about where he stands on that.
1: There are uh, a lot of people who are concerned about what they see as a law and order issue um, and uh, rioting and protests. Uh, can you speak to that as well?
3: Yes, definitely. Uh, I don't like rioting and protesting. It's unacceptable. I was a military policeman. Uh, I served with law enforcement at every level uh, from, you know, your building security all the way up to Secret Service, uh, FBI, you name it. Uh, those are people that I um, are close friends with, that I served with for, for years. And uh, I I had training to go. So if I were still in the guard, I got out in 2018, I would have been uh, dispatched to go help uh, deal with it. And so um, it's unacceptable, but I definitely uh, am a strong supporter of the right to peaceful protest. uh, And um, that's that's simply where I stand.
1: Some people though are making an equivalency between the the Protests and uh, law and order issues that are happening, uh, sometimes around the racial justice um, protests, with some of the uh, other concerns about nationalist groups.
3: Yeah, you know, I think that this is part of the problem where we're at as a country where there's a lot of sense there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of division and then there's people that are picking each side and and pushing uh, each agenda. I come from a place of wanting to bring people together, wanting to unite people. I don't see them as equivalent, uh, but I definitely uh, think that the people who go out and protest and cause violence um, and destruction are doing a disservice and, and harm to the cause that they that they speak of and um, uh, seek to advocate for. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, I think it's just reprehensible for people to use this as an opportunity to go out and intimidate and um, stir up fear and um, try and drive us toward uh, more civil strife and, and unrest.
1: North Idaho, Mr. Evans, which is in this district, has a history of being a haven for white supremacists. There's some evidence that recruitment for those groups uh, is continuing in that area. Um, Do you condemn white supremacy and white nationalism?
0: Yes, I condemn white supremacy and white nationalism. That has no part, no role in what the American dream is. All men were created equal, and as such, they should be treated equal not just in the eyes of the law, but in justice and their natural rights as human beings. And that goes clear back to the Declaration of Independence, 1776. I see no reason why, go ahead.
1: Sorry, there's so much um, consternation about these issues right now, and violence, frankly. Um, How do you see ways to quell those tensions that are occurring in our country right now, whether that be over these type of groups or there's you know other people who uh, are pointing the finger at racial justice groups you know or Black Lives matter how, how do you quell those tensions?
0: This goes back to the first question you asked me about uh, people seeing being a sense of trepidation about the current situation in the United States okay? All of these groups see that there is something wrong in America, there is something broken in the way we do things. And they're all shouting out, they're all angry, they're trying to get their voices heard. Part of the problem is, is they're all looking at the exact same problem from different perspectives and they're trying to argue whose perspective is actually right when it comes to solving the problem. Now we've seen some groups come together and actually sit down and hash things out Uh, The Proud Boys in Utah sat down with the Utah branch of Black Lives Matter. They had a joint press conference, several other organizations like that, several meeting grounds that have happened. So I think part is getting those people who understand that the system is broken to sit down and actually discuss the nature of how it's broken.
1: North Idaho has a history of being a haven for white supremacists, and there's evidence that more recruiting to those groups is going on in that uh, area. Do you, cont- do you condemn white supremacy and white nationalism?
2: Any, any race uh, supremacy, yeah. I mean, and by the way, I, I've not seen that. Uh, in terms of the uh, new activity, uh, I, we all know there was a history there, but I, I haven't seen it most recently, but of course. And uh, and here's an interesting point about that, because I'll just I'll just uh, state it again. Um, I don't have uh, any racial supremacy. It is is not appropriate as far as I'm concerned. Uh, The Antifa BLM uh, movement has has risen. uh, And and uh, so much of that focus has been centered around race. And there are areas in the country where there's that's a problem. But it's gone beyond that now. Uh, I believe there are those trying to manipulate that and to try to, to use that as an excuse to keep things stirred up, to create more problems when there's there is an underlying root of, of those who want to shift our country away from that representative republic to a more socialistic republic. The social unrest really helps. And so uh, those flames have been fanned inappropriately. But I'll, uh, I'll restate what uh, the first part of your que- the response to the first part of your question, which is uh, now uh, uh, any racial supremacy uh, effort is is wrong. We're all people, and uh, we're all created equal, and that's the way we should be treated.
1: Recently, the House passed a resolution condemning a group called QAnon uh, that promotes baseless conspiracy theories. You didn't vote on that resolution. Uh, why not? And do you believe in any of the theories of QAnon?
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, I would have to say no, but I'll also tell you that I don't know what a lot of them are. Uh, interesting day when that came up, and if, depending on how close do you follow that, uh, no one knew that vote was coming on up until just a few hours prior. There was another one with it that had to do with, as I recall correctly, uh, uh, sterilization or involuntary sterilization of immigrants and things like that. Uh, Marcia, those weren't bills that were put out uh, specifically to address what's on the face of those bills. They were put out as messaging bills. That's an unfortunate process happening in the U.S. Congress right now. The QAnon bill was really aimed at uh, trying to create a, uh, a dialogue and a distraction do to you, attack do you the condemn
1: their Do you condemn their views though?
2: From what I understand, I mean, it's... it's uh, uh, this is another one of those distractions that tries to promote hate, I, I believe. And assuming that's true, yes, I do. And so, but just understand, that was not the purpose of that bill. The purpose of that bill was to try to create a storyline and attack the president because uh, to some people, he hadn't uh, gone out strong enough against hate groups.
1: There is a lot of concern about the upcoming election and its results, the way it's handled. Do you share those concerns? Do you have confidence in the upcoming election, the way it'll be handled and its results?
0: Yes, I have confidence in the elections, especially the Idaho elections. Uh, We have an awful lot of people who've been very involved in politics in the state of Idaho. They've done an extremely good job of making sure it's been fair and even, and they've done everything they've could this particular round in order to facilitate fairness and equitability as well as security to make sure that this election, particularly the Idaho election, goes off in the Idaho way. And that is with fairness and security.
1: There have been concerns about the upcoming election. Do you have confidence in how the election will be held and its ultimate results?
2: I am concerned and uh, uh, I think I think we'll know the results, but my estimation is we probably won't know them on November third or November fourth. Uh, last week, we were able to go into a skiff room, a, a secured room, one at a time, uh, and read uh, the intelligence reports on uh, election uh, challenges to uh, the election system. And I, I do believe there are reasons for some concern. There's no question that a broad mailout mail uh, uh, broadcast of ballots has is ripe for uh, uh, ripe for ballot harvesting and some and some fraudulent activity that is going to happen in some states uh, the answer is not by the way for the federal government to take over all of the elections I think that that rightfully belongs to the states but we have to just take our time and try to filter through all this uh, there is going to be some attempts and there always has been or not always maybe but uh in recent history other areas other nations other people trying to influence through social media and that kind of thing uh and so we need to be on guard for that but yes i am concerned about how some of this gets tabulated in particular with just mailing millions of ballots out and then uh uh you know wondering who are they're going to come back from there's a, a couple of colleagues that i have in other states who who not so jokingly say, "In order to win the in my state, you have to win the dead vote," and what they mean by that is is garner the people who've already passed away and their votes and uh, possible fraud there. Okay. So, okay. I'm concerned. Okay, thank you,
1: Mr. Fulcher, uh After the election, will you encourage your constituents to uh, accept the results?
2: Oh, of course, you know, and, and uh, as importantly, I encourage them to. Help create the results. Uh, we're blessed with the ability to uh, to live in this representative republic, and sometimes we have a tendency to take it for granted. We need, we all need to be involved. We all need to vote, and uh, uh, and and we all need to to agree to a peaceful transition of power. And so, uh, yes, and please get involved,
1: Mr. Soto. There are concerns about the upcoming election. Um, Do you have confidence in how the election will be held and its ultimate results?
3: Well, if you asked me that a week or a a week and a half ago, I would have said, yes, absolutely. Without a doubt, I have complete confidence. But then uh, I helped, uh, I had a part in dealing with the situation in Nampa that was deeply concerning. Uh, We went from having 55 Uh, polling locations in 2018, a midterm election, to just five in all of Kenny County, the second most populous county in the state. Nampa uh, is known to have around 100,000 people where they were gonna make it to where there was only one polling site for the entire city during early voting and election day. That was deeply troubling, especially as a person of Hispanic heritage where uh, That's where those population um, demographics are are centered most. And so it, it was deeply troubling to me. And it seemed like voter suppression. And there's been a lot of confusion and a lack of clear information about precinct specific voting versus in-person early voting sites and then absentee ballots. So I I really uh, do have concerns uh, with the administration of the election here in Idaho. And I uh, believe that mail-in voting is safe and sound. And so I encourage it and especially in-person voting, uh, but I have concerns with the lack of polling sites and clear information.
1: It's time now for your closing statement, if you could go ahead with that.
2: One of the things that we didn't uh, get a chance to talk about was uh, an issue that doesn't get a lot of airtime right now, and that has to do with the U.S. debt. And uh, we're 20-some trillion now in debt, which means that more than likely, no one listening or watching this this broadcast uh, will be alive when it gets paid off. And, uh, and that's troublesome to me. And so we focused a lot on trying to uh, uh, bring attention to that issue. But I'll make my closing statement similar to my opening one, which is, I think this year is going to be a turning point for our history. And I want to do whatever I can to make sure that our representative republic stays in place. It is under attack, we are under attack. And when history looks back on this year, I want it to be that this was a, a monumental year that America overcame a major challenge and uh, not one where we took a major turn into socialism. I believe that I've been prepared uniquely to take on this challenge and uh, I'm willing to do it. I'm honored to do it. I'm proud of our state. We have a fabulous state here and I see other states all the time. Thank you, you're
1: out of time if you wanna wrap up very briefly.
2: We need you now. And so don't forget to get involved and vote. America needs you and Idaho needs you thank you
1: thank you so much for your time today thank you it is already time for a closing statement you have a minute for that
3: well thank you Marsha. thank you idaho public television press partners all involved who've had a helping hand and make this possible that are keeping the public informed during this difficult time i'm running for everyday Idahoans, Americans, uh, people are struggling to make ends meet that are simply seeking a fair shot at the American dream. I have a a experience with overcoming a great deal of challenges. I just lost my sister within the past two weeks and it it wasn't she wasn't um, She didn't have the the coronavirus herself, but it was an indirect impact. And so my heart goes out to all who are dealing and coping with uh, loss uh, right now. I'm driven by a desire to be a part of helping us turn the page uh, to transform a negative into a positive and to bring about more unity and hope and uh, belief and restoring uh, our country's um togetherness thank you and very so, much yeah, it would be an honor to represent Idaho's first congressional district
1: thank you for taking the time to talk with us today
3: thank you Marsha.
1: we are already at the point in the program where you can give your closing comment so please do
0: that okay thank you Marsha. i really appreciate for the opportunity to uh sit here and talk with you guys today This is a historic moment for me. It's a historic moment for the Libertarian Party. Uh, Without digging too deep into history, I believe this is the first time a Libertarian candidate has actually participated in the Idaho debates. But what we're looking for, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And all of those are made much more available through deregulation at the federal level. We need to give power back to the people. And in order to do that, We need to reduce the influence that the federal government has on what happens in our states and in our communities, whether that's with regards to conservation, environmentalism, education, or business procedures. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Mr. Evans.
0: Thank you, Marcia.
1: And that's all the time we have. You've been listening to a question and answer session with the candidates for the first congressional district in Idaho. Even though this wasn't a traditional debate, I hope you feel more informed about your choices, and I encourage you to vote on November 3rd. For the Idaho Debates, I'm Marcia Franklin.
0: The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public
3: Broadcasting.